Uh, I'm, I'm from Texas, but uh, I live in Washington State, and we uh, planted a church there about a year and a half ago. And so you guys have been uh, supporting us, and so it means so much to us. And so we're coming down visiting family and stuff like that. So I thought we'd come down and visit you guys, and um, I thought I'd share some from the Word with you. Um, we actually just finished a parenting series uh, up where we are, and um, so I thought I'd just share one of those uh, sermons with you that just seemed especially uh, encouraging to our people, and thought I'd share that with you today. Um, I think for me, I, we have just one child, um, so I'm by, by no means an expert on, the, on what I'm going to talk about today. Um, we have our daughter, Eliza, who's six months old, but it's given me a good opportunity to really rethink, um, rethink about God as Father and what that means. And the good news is that God is the ultimate Father, right? Um, I have a, a pastor I really respect who always <laughs> tells his kids, I'm not your real dad. <laughs> and what he's saying there is he's t- trying to tell them, God's your real father. You know, daddy messes up, uh, but God is always good. And um, we're going to talk about some things today um, that even if you don't have kids, um, I hope that you grow in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And we're going to talk about a lot of things that just kind of help us think through um, how people work, what growth really looks like, um, what it looks like to disciple people. I mean, a lot of the same principles when it comes to discipling another person and helping them grow in Christ is the same principles in parenting and vice versa. Um, I, I'm going to say some hard things today, and so I want to kind of, before I say hard things, <laughs> I want to lay a quick foundation for you um, by saying um, none of us are everything that our kids need us to be. None of us can be everything that they need us to be. And that can be really hard. Um, the only way I know how to actually be able to work on myself as a parent or a husband or a pastor is the foundation of knowing that God does not look at me by my performance, but he judges me by the performance of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And if that's true, um, I can fearlessly, fearlessly look at the weaknesses, no matter how glaring they are in my own life, um, knowing there is no voice of condemnation on me. Um, I hope that's true for you. I'm going to move forward assuming that it is. Because if not, um, the things I'm going to say might be a little condemning. But, I mean, in the sense of uh, the accuser might use them that way. But when you have the foundation of being fully secure and fully accepted by God's good grace poured out on you in Jesus Christ, there's nothing you can't work on. Um, We're going to look at two things today. We're going to, first of all, talk about how to understand um, the heart. And um, why kids do what they do. And secondly, we're going to look at, I want to give you some practical handles on how to actually disciple your children. Um, I went to a parenting conference pretty recently by a, named guy, by a guy named Paul Tripp. If you guys know him, it was, it was phenomenal. He just wrote a book, I think it's called Parenting. Um, I think it's like 14 Gospel Principles on Parenting or something like that. Uh, the, the conference was amazing. So if anything here kind of jives with you, uh, I, recommend, I recommend his book and resources highly. Um, but one of the things he said that I wrote down as a quote, he said, the average parent believes that if we can succeed in keeping a set of neat rules with neat consequences, 
reinforced by neat threats, then our children will turn out just fine. He said, the average parent believes if we can succeed in keeping a set of neat rules with neat consequences, reinforced by neat threats, then our children will turn out just fine. And then he said, but that isn't Christian or parenting. I didn't say that. He said that. Now, the problem is, and that's why he's saying this, is the tendency, I think, is to focus on behavior modification of our children. The tendency is to think, if I can just get them to behave, you know, if I can get them to respect people or respect me, to do the things I ask of them, then everything will be okay. And what he's saying here is that that's not enough. Um, Even if you get your kids to somehow obey all the rules and be the most well-behaved, the most um, positive kids you know, you have to stop and ask the question, is that really what God's after? The answer has to be no. And our best example of that is the Pharisees. No one was better at obeying the rules than the Pharisees. Um, They were obsessive rule followers, but they were Jesus' enemies because they completely missed God's heart. And I'm afraid the default for really good, well-meaning Christian parents is to focus on behavior modification so that we end up raising really nice legalists. You know, really nice kids who are really good at following the rules, but not ultimately having their hearts changed. And then, of course, we're surprised and devastated when uh, years later they leave their so-called faith, but their faith was in their own goodness. It was not that they were sinners saved by grace. Um, in Luke 6.45, I'm going to look at just one verse here that I think if we really just even were able to key in on this one verse would change our entire approach to parenting. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 45. He says, A good man produces good out of the good storeroom of his heart. An evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Man, Jesus is saying something so, so significant here. He's saying... Everything you do, everything you say, all the decisions you make flow out of something called the heart. Um, It's not that you just need to behave better or think better or feel better. It's there's something deeper within you that's causing you to do the things that you do. And until that thing changes, your life hasn't actually changed. Now, I want to talk about the heart because in our culture, when we talk about the heart, we mean emotions. That's what we mean when we use... when. Today we talk about the heart, follow your heart. We talk, we're talking about emotions. That's not what the Bible's saying when the Bible talks about the heart. Um, it includes emotions, but it's much deeper. It's much more comprehensive than that. The heart is, put most simply, what you most love. What you most love. What you most cherish. What you put your identity in. What you put your hope in. What do you cling to and say, as long as I have this, everything's going to be okay. That's where your heart is. Now, that includes emotions, but it's much deeper than that. Um, an illustration we used as we, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians is I like to think about a tree. And above, above the soil, you've got the, the branches and you've got the fruit. And this is the illustration Jesus uses. And the fruit is all the things you do and all the things you say and everything that everybody else can see. But that fruit is coming from someplace, and that place is the roots of your heart. But our tendency in Christianity um, is to, uh, to borrow Matt Chandler's term, to, to white-knuckle it. 
And let me give, give me an example. Um, you're driving down the road, and somebody's on their cell phone, and they cut you off. Um, maybe you guys are more spiritual than me, um, but I don't, I don't react really well when that happens. Um, there's a big part of me that wants to uh, get them back in some way. But I don't, and here's what I do. I, I, I take it out of my steering wheel instead. You know, I just grab that steering wheel, and I say, I'm a Christian, you know, you know? And, and I'm not going to do that, you know. Now, um, don't get me wrong. There are lots of times in Christianity when you sort of have to do that. But ultimately what God's after, oh man, there we go. <laughs> okay. A bit louder. There we go. Um, ultimately what God's after is creating in you the type of person that doesn't need to go run that guy off the road or that doesn't even have that impulse. He wants to change who you are, not just what you do. And our tendency is essentially, like, to think about the root and the fruit, to think about the trees, is we can kind of um, hide the fruit really well and then make it look like we're really good. And it's easy to do that with our, with our kids. Now, man, sorry, I, got, I have ADD, so I'm, this is not going to be the first time this is going to happen. I apologize. Um, uh, Apologize. So, we look at one of, one of Jesus' most monumental commands in Matthew 22, to love God and love people. Why, why would Jesus say that? Those, aren't those really hard commands? I, I imagine it was infuriating for the Pharisees, for Jesus to say, love God with all you are and go love people as yourself. Because how do you go obey that? That's not like give this much money, go help this person in this way. It's, it's care so much about God. Love him so much that no matter what he says, your answer is yes. No matter what he tells you to do, you say yes before he's even finished talking. Love people and value them so much that you meet their needs with the same strength and desire that you meet your own. Now, the question is this. If we loved people like that, and we loved God like that, how often would we lie? How often would we lose our temper? How often would we talk when we should be listening. See, Jesus is getting at something here. He's saying when the bottom of who you are is right, when your foundation of your heart is right, you don't have to make yourself obey all the commands. Those come out of you. A really good example, um, if you've ever known a teenager in love, isn't it just nauseating, you know? Um, Have you ever, or you don't have to be a teenager, by the way, but or even somebody in their 20s or 30s or maybe older. But um, you ever see them where they're kind of irrationally in love? You know, like head over heels. And you try to explain, you try to talk to them, and it's like they can't, they can't hear words that you're saying to them. And you're saying, this person's not good for you. And you're saying, you know, it, you're changing for them. You're changing things about you for them. Um, you don't see all their weaknesses. But for them, it's like they're in la-la land. It's like they're so in love with this person that everything about them is, is oriented around it, and they can't even see straight. That, that's a really good picture of what the heart is like. I, lo- I love this quote from uh, Timothy Keller. He says, What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. It's when your heart is there, everything else about you comes in the line. Um, I'll give you an example. 
uh, you got company coming over later. And so mom's in the kitchen getting things ready. And the kids are in the living room playing video games. And mom's stressing out. and She's kind of trying to get everything ready and there's not enough, not enough time. And what should the kids be doing? They should be helping. They're part of the family too. Why don't they? Their heart in that moment cares much more about their comfort than they do their mom's happiness. It's not just an obedience problem. It's not just that they should be doing something that they're not doing. It's that their heart, their heart is wrong. Their heart is selfish. And until that changes, no amount of rules is going to fix that. No amount of rules is going to make them be sensitive to what's going on in their mom's world in order to put themselves out there to help her. This is what I'm trying to help us see. That the real problem is not just that we obey or disobey. That's not the problem with your kids. It's not the problem with you. Is the problem with adults simply that we don't know God's will and obey it? Is that really our problem? I just don't know his rules and obey them. That's absolutely not the problem, and it is absolutely not the problem with our children. It's not just that they don't know the, know the rules and obey them. There's something much deeper going on. The default mode of parenting is to try to focus on changing behavior, which isn't bad, but long-term, it won't actually change your kids and the people God wants them to be. Now, let's look at one passage that's going to drive this a bit deeper, and that's Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, this is a little bit, a little bit of a long passage, but let me just read it to you. Starting in verse 18, it says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, and here's the important part, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Now, what he's saying here is so significant. He's saying the problem with people, is with mankind, the problem of sin is not just a problem of law. It's not just a problem of disobedience. It's that we have taken what God has given us and worshiped those things rather than worshiping the God who gave it. That the real problem with people is not just a disobedience problem. It's that we have taken the good things God gave us, even our kids, and we worship those things rather than the God who gave us those things. Um, this has made us addicts. Um, it, breaks us, it breaks life down. Um, I'll give you another simple illustration. You've got a, a little boy who's four years old, and he's got his favorite Tonka truck. And um, he goes into the room, and his sister is playing with the truck. So what does he do? He takes the truck away from her, and he bops her on the head with it. <laughs> and 
and she's crying, and it's, it's a whole meltdown thing, and you go in there. Now, let me add, t- time out. What is the problem there? Is, there? is it a disobedience problem, or is it something deeper? Is the problem that he actually loves his toy more than he loves his sister in that moment? Like, let's be honest. He loves what he gets from that toy and his ownership of that toy more than he does his sister's joy, right? My point here is, even from a young age, our loves are disordered. We love the wrong things in the wrong ways. We worship the things God gives us rather than God himself, and it it reorients everything around us. Now, what kids need and what we need is what the Bible is going to call spiritual sight, Children need to be able to eventually see their sin and see the sufficiency of God's grace. Um, I want to talk to you about, uh, for the last part of this, uh, we're going to spend time on our talk about four core idols. Uh, these are by a guy named Tim Chester. You heard of him. Uh, I just found this to be a really good grid of thinking through uh, idols. What I mean by idols is there are things that we take that God gives us, and we worship those things rather than God himself. So what I want to do is talk to you about those idols, talk to you about um, how to notice them in your children, and, and how to preach the gospel to them, okay? First one, number one, power and success. Power and success. If you look at Adam and Eve, they had everything that they needed from God, and then they ate the fruit to go away from God. What, what was their response after they had sinned? It was to hide and to overcompensate. They built fig leaves and they tried to hide their shame in order to feel more and be more than they really were. This, this is the nature of people. We have this, this power idol is so thick, it is especially thick in our culture. Let me just give you some examples. Um, anybody know any one-uppers? You know what I mean by one-upper? Like, you've got a story, and they've always got a better story. You know, don't point fingers, okay? But, but you, you know somebody like that, right? You tell a story, and it's like, they've caught a, they've caught a bigger fish. They've climbed a higher mountain. They've been, right? What is that? Why is it that we always need to be more and have more and love more and look better than other people? A really great example of this I heard um, is about a guy who, um, when he was in college, uh, he slept around a lot. And he chased a lot of women. Um, but he admitted later, it wasn't really that he loved women. He just loved the conquest. You know, he loved to be able to sort of win them over and, and then have them and sort of accomplish something. So he had this like deep, it was about power. It was about feeling like he was a man. So it's, he went to woman after woman because it made him feel that way. But when this guy became a Christian, something interesting happened. Um, he said that when they were in Bible class... He, he's the guy who always had to be right. He's the guy who always had to have his opinion known. He's the guy you couldn't disagree with. And wh- what'd he say? He still had a power idol. It just looked different. See, it's possible to take our idols and actually couch them in religious ways and cover them up, but they're still just there. Um, by the way, we pastors are terrible at that. Um, People who are driven by power, appearance, accomplishment, competition. You see this very early in kids. Obvious ways, right? You see it in bullying. They, they want to they have dominance over another child for one reason or another. They're over, overly competitive. Kids who can't handle failure. 
You know, there's ki- kids who, when they fail, like, they just fall apart. They fall to pieces. Um, bossy, you often see this in the firstborn, because what happens is you get used to power when you're the oldest kid, and you get used to be, and so you begin to crave it. You know, they begin to, they're so used to being able to have, like, their, their siblings bend to their will that as they get older, they, they need more of it. You see this in kids who, who need the gold, the gold star. Do you know what I mean? I mean, now every kid loves the gold star, but there are some kids who they can't do without it. They've got to have five more gold stars than everybody else. It's a power thing. Um, now, I want to talk about what is the good news that our hearts need about who God is. The good news is that God is glorious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. What your kids need, what we need, whenever this power thing is going on, is to capture a vision of the glory of God that dwarfs our own. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. I love the picture in Isaiah. Uh, It's an overwhelming picture. He's given a vision. He's seen the temple. There's the robes draped down. It's shaking. There's smoke. It's this absolutely overwhelming picture. And how does Isaiah respond? He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It is so hard to be obsessed with your own power when you have any glimpse of the glory and power of God. That's what your children need. That's what we need. Um, it's sort of like um, a little ant. You're, you, ever, you, ever watch, um, you ever look at an ant pile? Imagine that that's us and we're sort of God. You know how silly it would be for ants to be strutting and trying to say, I'm a better ant, and I'm a better ant. When you're sitting there like this, you're like, you could just crush it. Mean, that's what we are. Like, it's, it's absolutely silly that we build our identity in having more and being more than other people when holy God is standing above us. When you see who God is, it is so hard to be self-inflated. It's nearly impossible. So what kids need is they need to be in many ways shown the glory of God that dwarfs their own. And it happens over, over time. It happens over years. You can't just snap your finger and do it. It takes family worship. It takes going out into nature and saying, look at what God has made. Let me move on to the second one, which is comfort. So we're talking about four core idols. The second one is comfort. Um, at the bottom of Adam and Eve's sin, they were telling God, real joy is not found in you Real joy is found away from you. And so we're going to go over here to find joy because you are not enough. Um, we do this with virtually everything. Um, the problem, again, is that we take good things God has created and we worship them. Um, it's not just that we enjoy football. It's that we obsess over football. You know, we're not just, we don't just enjoy it. We're fanatics. We build our emotions up and down on it. Um, it's not just that we drink alcohol. It's that we drown our sorrows in alcohol. It's not just um, that we enjoy money. It's that we hoard it and we keep it from others. And we use it selfishly. We take the things God gives us and we say, I need this and I can't do without this. It's a a comfort idol. It's a pleasure idol. You see this in kids. It's so obvious in kids. As soon as they learn one word, guess what that word is? 
mine, mine, mine. Uh, I heard of a kid who, um, they had a rule, you know, a lot of parents do this rule, where um, whoever gets to the toy first gets the toys. So what he decided to do was wake up one morning and he got all the toys in one, in one pile in the middle of the room. His parents came in and said, what are you, what are you doing? He said, I got them all first. <laughs> They're all mine. No, no one else could have them. I mean, what is that? Like, no one taught him that, right? It's like from a very young age, we take the things God has created and we do this. I need it. I can't, I can't be without it. Watch for this in your children. By the way, kids are especially prone to do this with media. Um, I, don't, I don't have time to get into it, but if you ever have time to kind of Google and look it up, look at the scientific studies that are done on the similarities between media addiction and drugs. They have almost the same effects on the brain. Um, the same kind of dopamine responses and all that kind of stuff. And be careful, especially when your kid can't, can't be calm or happy without something. It's, it's dangerous. I'll look at you. Thanks, man. I'll call you in five minutes for a refill (laughs) Um, so it's it's good to okay because look you're not just raising children you're raising worshipers and because we are we are made to worship your children are are prone to worship things you you don't have to teach them it and you have to watch for it Um, it's good to create boundaries um from the things that they're going to love too much. The good news is that God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. That's the, that's the good news that your children need. That's the good news we need, is that God is ultimately more satisfying than the gifts he gives. Psalm 1611 says, you reveal, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. Um, as often as you can, it's good with your children to turn enjoyment of stuff into enjoyment of God. You go on a great vacation, you, you're enjoying your time out, get in the car, turn Lion King off, you know, for a minute, and say, what did you guys enjoy about today? And then say, isn't it good that God gave us that? As often as you can, turn enjoyment of life into worship of God. Um, number three is control. And by the way, this is my biggest one. Again, if we go back to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve really believed, ultimately, that they would be better sovereigns than God, that they, they deserved control more than God, and they wanted to be on the throne. Um, you see this especially in people who are prone to anxiety, fear, and anger. Um, people who worship control get anxious when they feel they're losing control. They get fearful of what they can't control, and they get angry when they do lose control. Um, If you find someone, my experience, you find someone who's chronically angry or chronically anxious, you almost always find someone who who absolutely worships control. They don't know it. That's, That's Most of the time, I think that's what it is. You see this especially people who are perfectionists, People who, are, who like to plan, they like to feel like they have in control, they're in control of everything. Um, again, it's a dangerous idol. Um, you see this in children who can't handle change. They can't handle uh, unmet expectations. You know, they, they freak out when you said something was going to happen and it didn't happen, you know. It's like they, they need to feel this sense of control. 
The good news is that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. <laughs> like, control is an illusion. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 1.11 says, We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. If there's been one, in, one verse that's really encouraged me over the last year, planting a church and doing ministry, I said, God works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. He's in the driver's seat and I'm not. And it's so liberating. Um, because my tendency is to really try to drive. Um, I, this example that keeps coming to me again and again uh, over the last year is um, it's sort of like if you're driving down the road and you let your, you let your child sit in your lap and you want to you help dad drive, you know? And, um, okay, gra- grab on. And they you even let them turn the wheel a little bit. And then a deer comes. And they freak out. They say, Dad, hit the brakes, hit the brakes. And you do, you know, you hit the brakes and you pull over and you're like, okay, you know, I'm letting, I'm letting you help Dad drive, but you know Dad's in control, right? But it's like the child over time really thought that they were the one in control. Control is an absolute illusion. You are not in control of your life. God is in absolute control of your life. He could, he could change anything he wanted to right now like that. So for me to think that I need to exercise control and be on the throne of my own life and make, every, make everything happen the way it needs to happen um, is an illusion. It doesn't work. I love the story of Joseph. You know, all the crazy things that happened to Joseph and then at the end of his life when he meets up with his brothers, who really meant all such a, sorts of horrible things to Joseph, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The truth is, God can take even your most messed up mistakes and make great things happen with them, even if you totally botch it. And by the way, if, if I had kind of one theme for the, the success in our um, church so far, success, it would be, um, we keep making lots of mistakes, and somehow God keeps blessing us. Like, that's, that's what keeps happening. And, and I really think it's one of those things that we could just continually look at God and say, it's all you. It's all the glory goes to you. We're, we're not in control. Children uh, need to know the God who is in control. Number four is approval, the fourth idol. Um, it's really interesting. In Genesis, God told them, I'm creating you in my image. When he does that, he is giving them a name. He's saying, you are mine. But ultimately, that was not, they, when they sinned, they were telling God, that is not enough. We need, we need to find who we are away from you. And we have been doing the same thing ever since. You see this in all kinds of ways. I wonder if you were able to look beneath the surface of why people do most of the things they do how much of what we, would, we do is to get people to approve of us, admire us, respect us, look highly upon us. Um, ways to look for this in kids or even adults. People who worship approval lie. They lie. Because they need to bend the truth to make them look good. Um, they avoid confrontation. Um, they can't handle someone being upset with them. So they do whatever they can to just kind of make peace because they need everybody to like them. Um, they gossip uh, because they need other people to look bad so that they can look good. Um, 
You see this in children who are, who are really sensitive to critique or who really can't handle not being part of the crowd um, or the kids who, when all the other kids are doing something, they have to do it. They can't possibly imagine going against the group. Um, by the way, in children, you will often see this, this kind of hunger for approval in two ways. One is that they will jump into the limelight. They'll jump into the limelight and they'll be performers. But you see also the opposite. There are kids who avoid the limelight and they withdraw and they back out because they can't handle looking bad. And that might happen if they get in the middle of the group. And you see this in adults too. The good news is that God is gracious so we don't need the approval of others. That's, a kid, that's, the, that's the truth your kids need. Um, the truths our children need is that the only one who, who really has the right to judge us judged his son instead. And that you, if you have his approval, nothing else compares. Um, I think the problem with most of these idols and most of these truths for most Christians is that we believe them theoretically, but we don't build our lives on them. We believe that God's got more glory than me, but we sure don't act like it. We act like, I've got to, I've got to have power. We believe God's the one in ultimate control, but we think, I've got to help him. We say, it's, en- it's enough that God approves of me, but then we go out and we seek everybody else's approval. We say, I know it's, true joy is found in him, but then we, need, we find addictions to make ourselves feel good. The, quest- the question I have is to think through, what, what are your idols? What are the things you hope in? What are the things you look to and say, as long as I have this, I'll be Okay. And if I don't have this, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, let me finish by reading you uh, something I wrote that's really helped me. And then we'll pray. It's just a little kind of poem I wrote almost to remind myself of the gospel. It's titled, Who Am I? I tell my own story with myself as both the hero and the victim, the center that everything else revolves around, the one everyone should both pity and admire. But I am no hero, and I am not a victim. I am a sinner, a self-glorying, self-seeking exploiter who uses God and people to achieve the satisfaction of my own desires. I don't even measure up to the standards I hold other people to. I'm selfish, Delusional about my goodness and blind to my badness. On my own, I am dead in my sins, without hope and without God in the world. In his holiness, God must seek punitive justice for my grievous sin, and he has every right to pour out his wrath upon me to the fullest degree. But God, who is rich in mercy, has not left me to my self-absorbed delusion. Out of the endless riches of his goodness... He has looked down on me not with resentment or hatred, but with unfathomable love. Somehow he has looked down on me and felt glad that he made me. And in his love, he decided to suffer on my behalf. On the cross, God chose to pour out the fullest degree of his wrath upon his own son, knowing I could not bear the weight of his wrath and live. Even as the inclinations of my heart were continually selfish all of the time, he rescued me, redeemed me, and adopted me as a full son and heir in his home. 
God no longer judges me by my performance, but by Christ's perfect performance. In Christ, he takes away my shame, comforts me in my afflictions, and pours out his love in ever-increasing measure. Even after he adopted me, I continue to sin. I continue to see myself as the great protagonist without regard for the true hero. But the great lover woos me back. Again and again, he pursues my heart, convincing me of his love, forgiving me my sins, calling me his child. The scandal of all scandals, he lets me, a sinner, call him father. Slowly but surely, he is changing me. He is carefully forming a new heart inside me. He is teaching me not to use him, but to serve him simply because I love him. Because of his all-consuming love, I know that even the costliest obedience on my part is a pinprick compared to the glory that is to come. He is teaching me not to use people, but to sincerely love them, laying down my life for them because he laid down his life for them first. I am a sinner saved by grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. You are so much better than everything else that we cling to. Everything else that we look to for satisfaction, everything we look to to base our lives on, base our identities in, God, we're sorry. We're sorry for the ways we, we worship the created rather than you, the creator. We pray that you would help us in discipling people, in raising our children, to not just look at behavior, but to look at the heart, because that's how you look at us. We pray, Father, that you would make it the most, give us the most vivid imaginations of your love before us. God, when everything else is shiny and pretty and immediate, God, make yourself known to us. We thank you that the, the most vivid picture we have is the cross. That there we have not just a truth or a doctrine, God, we have an actual event that happened that we can look at and say, that's where I find out everything I need to know about myself. That on the cross I see how in need I am, how sinful I am, but God, how utterly accepted in love we are. I pray that that would draw us to you, that you would draw us to yourself, not by our work, but by yours. You are so good and you are so gracious. We pray in Jesus' name.